Well, for those of you uh, dropping in this morning, perhaps for your first time or back and forth the last couple of weeks, we have been normally working our way through a book in the Bible called Philippians. We are going to get back there, I promise you. Uh, but this is the season of Lent that started last Sunday, <clears throat> and so uh, because of that, I have a different topic for us today, and I thought I'd uh, start it off by um, bringing a dead guy up to uh, share a quote that I thought was uh, pretty decent. Um, he says, a dead leaf cannot remain where a new bud is springing, nor can worldliness remain where the blessing of the spirit, uh, the spirit are the blessings of the spirit are flowing. By the way, just some trivia: uh, How many of you have ever heard of Dallas Theological Seminary? Oh man, more than I thought, because there used to be when it was kind of the big wig seminary of the country, but uh, not as much anymore. But this guy and his brother uh, started it back in the early 1900s. Uh, but this little saying, this little pig word picture of a a dead leaf being pushed out by the life in a new bud reminds me, ought to remind us, that what makes Christianity as a belief system so radically different than every other uh, kind of idea in the world, radically different than believing in yourself, for example. The difference is this, that Christianity is a responsive-driven system not a requirement-driven system. Christianity is a responsive-driven system, not a requirement-driven system. Virtually every other system has requirements. Do this in order to get this. Christianity gives you something and then enables you to do something. It's very different. It's a difference in the Bible between grace-driven and law-driven. And what happens to a true Christian uh, is that a true Christian is, by definition, a driven Christian. Uh, it's a, a, the, the Christian is driven by the Spirit to seek allegiance with Jesus. And as a result, the way that, that this Christian does this is through these life-infusing habits called spiritual disciplines that we're going to talk about today. This is how we respond to what the Holy Spirit does in us, these life-giving habits that we're going to talk about today. And so there, there, there is a sense in which a Christian is a striving, obedient, nonstop, just laboring hard till they're all the way home. But before we get into this, I want to make something very, very clear. This is not the engine that drives the car. This is the, this is the, the, this is the rail car that's being pulled by the engine. In this case, the engine is the work of Christ, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But make no mistake about it. A Christian is a working Christian, is a fighting Christian, is a persevering Christian, a laboring Christian, an obedient Christian. There is no other kind of Christian. But it's very important to understand how those two things go together. So let me pray, and let's look at a passage together. As always, Father, I pray that somehow your words would be given to your people today, that where my words help, they would be remembered, and where they're not helpful, they would be wonderfully forgotten for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Second Peter 
uh, chapter 1. I believe that text is also in your bulletin. We're just going to take a little, uh, a, a short look at this here. Um, and I'm going to, uh, I'll give you a little outline here. It looks busy at first, but we'll walk you through it. It's like the cereal aisle. You know, after you've been through it a couple times, it's not so bad. But um, in just these first couple of verses of 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4, let me read them first and then explain them. God's divine power has granted to us, he's speaking to people that have put their faith in Christ, to Jesus' followers, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. By the way, if you sometimes think that uh, I'm giving you a mouthful, too much to digest, this is where I get it from. <laughs> These are just two verses here. There's just so much here. Uh, and we're just going to highlight a few things. I want you to notice, first of all, that God's power gives something to every true child. Anytime someone puts their faith in Christ, this is what God does to every single one of them. He grants them something. Notice two times in here, it says granted. Uh, in fact, notice all the past tense in this verse. He's granted, he's called, um, he has, uh, what, what's the other? Those are the, he's called, he's granted, there's something that there was escaped. All of these things that have been done to us in one moment would we become a believer. And God, in this verse, there's basically two things that are granted to us. Everything we need to become godly, everything for life and godliness has been given to every believer and secondly, promises have been given to us. Have you ever think about that? Those promises go along with the, the means. The, the all things is a reference in my mind to spiritual disciplines. The, the means to become godlike. But in addition to that, there are promises that cheer us along the way. Those have been granted to us. And we have also been called by God into his own glory and excellence. So in a sense, it's not only that God's power has push-started us and keeps pushing us, but we've also been called like a magnet being drawn home. There's both, you know, the, the, the calling that, that uh, initially started and the calling that will see us all the way through. Remember the verse in Philippians 1? God began a good work in you, and guess what? Promise, he's going to complete it, okay? Start to finish. God's involved in all of this. Uh, and these promises are great promises. They are very great promises. They are precious promises. God's given us all that so that through them, you ready for this? You and I may become godlike, partakers of the divine nature. You don't just come to Christianity and flatline. Uh, something is going on inside of you because guess what? You have escaped something. You've escaped the gravitational pull of corruption. I hate the phrase, Red Bull gives you wings, because Jesus really wanted to use it before that. Uh, he did use it in one sense. When you become a believer, boy, I've taken too long on this. There's just so much here. Um, when you become a believer, it really is that caterpillar to butterfly thing. Now, here's where it gets confusing, though. 
God gives us wings, and for reasons I don't quite understand, but I've grown to accept, he also keeps us chained to the earth. <laughs> but, but, but every flap counts, and someday the chain will be severed, and we will soar forever. But uh, we have the, we've escaped the gravitational pull of corruption. Okay, that's all in verses 3 through 4, and it's a setup. That's why Peter doesn't spend a lot of time on it, probably more than, than I did, or less than I did. Look at verse 5. For this very reason, because of verses 3 and 4, make every effort. And then notice it keeps going on. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, affections. If these qualities are yours, verse 8, and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted, so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And then here it is again. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. And in verse 11, when you arrive at your eternal kingdom, why, it will be richly provided for you. There will be an abundance of rewards and fruits from this effort that you've put into this. So twice we're told in verses 5 through 10 to apply all effort. It's like he's saying, look, because there's wind on the lake, set your sails, capture the wind, figure out how to capture the wind and get rolling. That's what Peter's trying to cheer people on to do here or to use the Philippians language. Work out your salvation with intensity because God's working in you. So, this is Peter's version of the fruit of the Spirit here in verses 5, 6, and 7. Christ-likeness, basically. And this, by the way, verse um, 10, this is how you make sure that you're a true believer. This isn't what makes you a true believer. This isn't what makes you a true believer. But a true believer will apply all effort. They will catch the, the wind, as it were, uh, and as a result, their certainty that they belong to Jesus will become more and more real and more and more true for them as they see the fruit, the evidence of that. And this is where spiritual disciplines come in. The season of Lent, practiced by Christians for many, many centuries around the world, is like, in some sense, it can be like joining a spiritual gym. Now, some of you, hopefully all of you, to some extent, are in a spiritual gym. So maybe for you, the season of Lent is simply just going back to the basics, going through to, uh, to a spiritual trainer, trying to figure out how to, how to uh, re-gear up a little bit. It's a beautiful season given to the church where we get a chance to take a pause and focus on uh, growing closer to the Lord. Dallas Willard, who writes a beautiful book, one of the best books I've ever seen on spiritual disciplines. In fact, the title of it is The Spirit of, Dis of the Disciplines. The Spirit of the Disciplines. Uh, says this, Spiritual disciplines are nothing more than habits that bring us into more effective cooperation with Christ and his kingdom. They just get us more online. They sensitize us more to the Holy Spirit. They, they put wind in, in our sails. Or maybe another way to say this is Romans chapter 12, verse 1, which commands us, give your bodies 
a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. So this is how we give ourselves to God. This is how we sort of give ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. But before we get into the specifics of what exactly are these spiritual disciplines, I think it's very helpful to answer the question, uh, by the way, this is how it works, that the, the Holy Spirit empowers us. That's that bud of life coming out of us. That motivates us to practice these spiritual disciplines, and this brings virtues and fruit, Christ-likeness into our life. But I want to talk about, first of all, how are these disciplines practiced? In some sense, what I would say that this is more important than the actual disciplines themselves, which I'll give a few examples of in just a second here. But uh, I really want to take a second to focus in on this. The disciplines, these spiritual disciplines should be practiced eagerly. They are not, this isn't for everybody, but it is for some people in this room. Spiritual disciplines are not performance metrics. Spiritual disciplines are not uh, how well you're doing with the Lord. I remember years ago when I was in college ministry and uh, you'd catch up with someone you hadn't seen in a while and you'd, said, uh, you'd ask them, so how are you doing with the Lord? And almost to a person, they would recite how good they're doing with their spiritual disciplines, which of course has nothing to do with the question to some extent. Uh, if that's your measurement, if you're just saying, well, I'm not doing very well with the Lord, I haven't been to church in a long time. I, uh... Now, there's some correlation for sure, but that is not who you are. Your identity before the Father has nothing to do with your performance before the Father. That's why we have this bread and cup here. Christ has secured your identity. You are righteous before God. These are not performance metrics. They are simply rails to get us to where we want to be, which is closer to Jesus. Verse 3 of 2 Peter. Uh, the knowledge of him. We want to know Jesus more. That's all these spiritual disciplines are. So they should be practiced eagerly, not powered by self-will. They should be practiced liturgically. Now, this is a word you probably don't use very frequently. I would encourage you to use it in a sentence this week with someone. That's always a fun assignment. Uh, I could have said... Uh, they're practiced repeatedly, but that is such a cheap word compared to liturgically. <laughs> Think about this for just a moment. You know what liturgy is? And by the way, liturgy isn't just for Christianity. Sports have liturgies to them, right? Uh, you know, shopping has a liturgy to it. Uh, so liturgies are simply small things that you do that are almost unnoticed after a while, that make a profound difference over the long haul. I get up in the morning. You know, I, uh, I, I can do it blindly. You know, I can put the hot water on for my beautiful French press, reach up and put my coffee in without looking. I mean, it's part of this liturgy, and it has a profound difference in my life. That's a cheap illustration, but... So what you're doing with these spiritual disciplines is you are taking a spot in your life of chaos, and I'm using chaos in italics, where you just, it's a spot in your life where you just don't have control, it tends to control you more than it, whatever it is. You're just taking a spot in that life, 
and you're replacing that chaos with a, with a small rhythm of something you're doing, a small change. Lent isn't about uh, going on some kind of spiritually radical fast. It's just small changes that you continue way past Lent. And because of Jesus, those subtle changes can make a profound difference over the long haul. They should be practiced communally. In other words, they should be shared. Uh, the reason you should share what habits you're introducing or trying or restarting is so that others can cheer you along the way. I'll share you, I've got two things I'm doing this Lent. I'll share one of them with you. Uh, one of them is, uh, I, I told myself, or I should say the Holy Spirit told me that um, I really need to work at loving my wife better. Uh, I, I discovered that uh, my love had gotten really tired, you know, just kind of passively just doing low maintenance. And interestingly, at the same time, I was noticing that I was much more focused on what needed to change in Kathy rather than what was great about Kathy. And so it was something as simple, and I think Kathy even came up with this idea without knowing she was giving it to me. She gave it to someone else, and then I thought, I'll, I'm going to borrow that. Uh, and I was just trying to think of one thing every day just to thank the Lord for about Kathy and then tell it to her. Uh, and she told me, didn't you tell me this morning, stop, I'm overwhelmed? <laughs> Don't ask her how I'm doing. It was a great idea, but anyway. <clears throat> they should be practiced selectively. It is not one size fits all, okay? Lent isn't about getting all 40 spiritual disciplines online and, and running them at full tilt. By the way, I don't know how many spiritual disciplines there are. It should be practiced selectively. You should think about uh, the, a breach in your wall, which is one of the reasons why I chose the thing about Kathy. It was just an area of my life that was wilting spiritually. So maybe it's just one area of your life, and that's all you think about these 40 days of Lent. And it should be done imaginatively. What do I mean by that? Sometimes people hear about the idea of fasting. Fasting's a great idea. But there's dozens of ways to practice fasting. That's just in food fasting. But you can also fast from other things. I've mentioned before digital fasting. But let me give you something else I heard recently that was so imaginatively uh, interesting. And, and that was the idea of do your grocery shopping in a part of the town you would never go to to do grocery shopping. Get out of your silo. See what it's like to live in that neighborhood. Walk into that store that you're uncomfortable at and get a feel for other people and their worlds. The, you can, can you see how your imagination can just go wild on things that you can think about doing during this season? So let's talk about the types of disciplines. There's basically two categories of disciplines, disciplines of abstinence and disciplines of engagement. I'm going to give you just four ideas under each category. There are, these are just suggestive. There are other categories uh, as, uh, or other, um, this, this is not an exhaustive list. The reason I've chosen these four under each category is that I tend to think they're the ones that ought to be practiced the most given the current atmosphere of the church in America and to some extent, Red Cedar. So solitude, we see in Luke chapter five, even as the crowds are gathering for more of Jesus, he runs away from them. The discipline of solitude. In a sense, solitude is simply prioritizing God's space. 
you're deliberately walking away from even responsibilities. Life, life can be divided, I think, into three categories. The urgents, the important, and the essentials. And you know where we get most confused? In the importance. Solitude is walking away not just from urgence, it's walking away from even what's important for what's essential. Time with the Lord. Time with the Lord. It's slowing down, it's practicing silence, and silence for most of us means suffering. <laughs> suffering from boredom, suffering from restlessness. You know, Lent may be nothing more for some of you than 40 days of restlessness, but, but, but if it's practiced silence, it might be the best thing for you ever. Uh, but what you're doing in that restlessness and that boredom is you're actually training your soul to reflect which is having a hard time doing in a busy, fast-paced life full of importance and urgence. Uh, so solitude. Fasting is another one. I've already mentioned that. Um, but here, when Jesus reminds us that life is more than food, it's more than clothing, it's actually about God and his kingdom in this context. And so uh, you're, what you're doing in fasting is you're controlling appetites to see how they control you. You're picking something in your life to find out, I wonder how much control this has over my life, and you're reducing it. As one old-timer said, although these abstinences give some pain to the body, yet they lessen the power of bodily appetites and, impassion, and passions in order to increase our taste of spiritual joys. So for you, it might be entertainment, I've already mentioned the digital one. Uh, it might be shopping. It might be sugar. I mean, there's all kinds of categories you could think of uh, in this area. Notice I didn't choose sugar um, for my fasting thing. Um, simplicity. In 1 Timothy 6, we brought nothing into this world, and as you know, we'll take nothing out of this world. So as for the rich, which is basically everyone in this room, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies. And simplicity is maybe a maybe an easiest way to think of simplicity is a spring cleaning of your life. Just take inventory. Look at your schedule. Look at how many things that you have. Look at how many relationships you're trying to maintain. How many goals that you have. Maybe simplicity is getting rid of a fourth of those or a half of those. And then finally, a, one that may surprise some of you, but I think it goes hand in hand with Philippians, what I call the discipline of secrecy. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. What you're doing basically in the discipline of secrecy is you're shutting down all forms of self-promotion. You're shutting down all forms of self-promotion, something that draws attention to you. And you're actively looking for opportunities to promote uh, others. And in the process, what happens is secrecy weans, this is what I love about secrecy, it weans us off of lesser lovers. We all have people that we want love from them, 
And that's not necessarily wrong. God made us to want to be loved. But whoever we're looking for to love us is never going to be enough because they're lesser lovers than God. And so when you shut down self-promotion, wanting certain things from other people, it enables, it, it gives the Holy Spirit an opportunity for you to experience Jesus affectionately and not just intellectually. It enables you to actually enjoy him on an emotional level so he satisfies you. So those are just some examples of disciplines of abstinence and now some engagement disciplines. Think of it this way. Abstinence disciplines are resisting bad desires and engagement disciplines are reinforcing good desires. One is breathing out, one is breathing in. Uh, so study would be one. Psalm 1 speaks about not walking in the counsel of the wicked by meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. And by meditation here, I'm speaking about something more than just Bible reading and Bible listening. I'm talking about taking a moment in your life, apart from Sunday morning, where you're around the Word of God and you're asking the question, so what? You know, you read something, ask, answer the question, try to answer the question, so what? Some of you may be trying to read a ton of Scripture, and as a result, you're just burring, you know, just driving through it, and it's not really driving in you. So I would encourage you to slow down, read less, but read what you do deep, more deeply. Just ponder over it, write it out. There's so many things. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. Most people, if they're going to learn the discipline of study, need a spiritual trainer. You cannot probably do this all by yourself. You don't need a spiritual trainer forever, but you need a season where you have a spiritual trainer who will help you learn how to study the word. And if you want one and can't find one, I will do everything in my power to connect you with someone. I don't like making that promise lightly, but I will. So try me out. All right. Uh, another disciplinary service. Jesus speaks about those, the unbelievers, the Gentiles. The, the way that they go through life is they're... They seek power, and they seek power over others. But he says, that shall not be the way with you, but you shall be servants. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This, by the way, is one of the areas where we are off the charts great as a church. There are so many of you that serve so many others in so many ways. Um, so I'm preaching to the choir in a, in a lot of ways, but for some of you it might mean watching someone else's kids. It might be serving on Sunday if you're not serving on Sunday. It might be helping out at the Endeavor House. You're going to hear more about that in a few weeks. We need more people to volunteer out there. Uh, it might be sending cards to someone. We used to have someone, a part of this flock, who would send cards to someone. No one does that anymore. It's just a simple little way to serve people. I'm not sure what it is for you, but there's all kinds of ways of service. And then here's a surprising one, perhaps, for some of you, celebration. Oh, I'll pick that one for Lent. <laughs> well, if you're quick to pick it, maybe you're the one, that's not the one for you. <laughs> but um, Ecclesiastes 5 says it so perfectly about the idea that it is a gift of God that we can, we can rejoice in our toil, we can accept our lot in life, 
and uh, we can realize that we don't deserve anything and whatever we get, we treasure. That's the idea here in Ecclesiastes 5. And so what we're essentially doing in celebration is we're gathering with others. You can certainly do this by yourself, but there's a certain sense of which celebration has an almost implication of it being done in a shared way. But you gather with others to delight in God's gift and God's work. When God does something, it ought to be published. We're going to end the communion in a little while. We're going to say as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim, we publish, we visibly do something to give Jesus attention. So that's what celebration is. Some of you might think about having a thawing out party uh, sometime around Easter, right before it for some of your neighbors. Uh, people have new babies. Uh, great way to celebrate. People have changes in employment. Uh, you can celebrate that as well. The, um, uh, on the back, on the way to the, the hallway down to the bathroom back there, we have a board out there. Some of you remember a few months back on that board, we invited all of your questions that turned into a class. Well, now that board has changed, thanks to Sherry. And it's, uh, it's all set up for you to put little three-by-five cards or little notes of evidences of God's grace. So wouldn't it be great if there was, you couldn't even see the background of that board by the time Easter came? Because uh, whatever evidence of grace, you can do it anonymously, you can do it with your name on it. I would encourage you to publish it back there. And lastly, uh, confession. This engagement discipline of confession, Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But if you confess it and forsake it, you'll obtain mercy. And confession is not necessarily one of those things that is meant just for you and God alone. In many cases, we ought to be confessing our sins to one another, especially if we've sinned against one another. But even if we haven't sinned against one another, we ought to realize in the spirit of Galatians chapter 6, you who are spiritual, it says, restore the one who is stumbling, but look to yourself because you know you stumble as well. That's the idea there in Galatians 6. We ought to be a place where it's ordinary for us to be sharing our strugglings and stumblings and following Jesus because we need one another. And Jesus loves it and he shines out greatly when we call upon others in the midst of that and ask for help. Too often we can think of the godliness and spiritual disciplines as a kind of um, spiritual gym where you don't even want to show up there because, you know, it's all this sort of contest of who's the most godly. I think instead, I want to give you another picture of the Christian life. How many of you remember that video game that came out in the early days of video games called the Oregon Trail? Oh, some of you do. All right, even if you never remembered it, here was the great thing about it. Uh, even though all our kids practiced this, I never really thought twice about it. But um, you basically had a group of people that started out and you went, you made your way from Missouri over to, uh, to Oregon. And of course, we loved it. We lived in Oregon at the time. But inevitably, virtually all the people on your wagon train got killed or by something. You know, I mean, only a few people survived. It was quite a, it was a contest just to survive. It really was. Uh, and there was a way to play it so you could kill people off faster. But anyway, uh, the Christian life is much more 
like the Oregon Trail, where we desperately need one another to survive and thrive until we're all the way home. That's what the kind of, that's what confession does for us here. It uh, helps us admit our neediness to one another. Now, before I conclude, I want to invite the worship team and the guys serving communion to come forward. I'll mention this again, like I do every time. If you're visiting with us, this isn't Red Cedar's table. Uh, You're welcome to come and take bread and cup to take communion with us if you're part of that extended church family, if you believe in the Apostles' Creed that we read earlier, if you acknowledge that Jesus is your only hope for forgiveness and that he is the king that deserves your total submission. So you're welcome to come here. And I I want to remind you of the passage that Paul read for us from 1 Timothy 4. First Timothy 4 speaks about this contrast here between physical discipline and spiritual discipline. Physical discipline has some benefits, but the beautiful thing about spiritual disciplines is that it not only benefits you in this life, like physical discipline does, but it actually benefits you in your ultimate life. It carries on into the next life. It's almost like you're learning dance steps that become eventually in eternity muscle memory. And because of this bread and cup, I don't mean to cheapen it, but I want you to think of this, the bread and cup today as sort of a pre-workout meal. This is going to nourish you in the spiritual workout of spiritual disciplines. After all, it's the sacrifice of Jesus that gives us the promise that we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's not ultimately up to us. God's actually working in us. And secondly, it's the sacrifice of Jesus that makes every effort. I love this part of it. It makes every effort, no matter how weak, no matter how inconsistent, it makes every effort that we contribute to walking with Jesus, to following his spirit, count. So, I began with a dead guy in the, what, 1900s? Let's end with a dead guy in the 1600s named John Owen. And then I'll pray, and then you come. John Owen says this, Know that God despises not small things. He's a skillful refiner that can find much gold in that ore where we see nothing but lead or clay. He remembers the duties which we forget and forgets the sins which we remember. He justifies our person, though ungodly, and will also justify our duties. Though not perfectly, he will justify our duties, though not perfectly godly, so that God accepts a little and Christ makes our little a great deal. So, Father, as we come to Bread and Cup now, thank you so much for the sacrifice of Jesus that makes our imperfect efforts count forever. What a Savior, what a King, what a Father you are, what a gift of your Spirit that you have given to us. 
empower us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We know you're at work within us. So we pray and come 